This is How to Read. I'm Milan. And I'm Olivia, the producer of this episode. Today we're talking with Paige West, an anthropologist who studies the relationship between societies and the surrounding environment. Today's episode is about the value of local knowledge. When you think of an expert or specialist, you might picture a scientist with a lab coat and test tubes. Science likes to claim that its knowledge applies everywhere, like gravity or evolution, which makes scientific knowledge superior to local knowledge about one specific place. But Paige West points out that in practice, scientists rely heavily on local people's knowledge. For example, the specialist knowledge that indigenous people in Papua New Guinea have about the fish, plants, and ecosystems of their area. In fact, such local knowledge has proven to be crucial for successfully combating major problems like climate change. Paige West, welcome. Hi, it's great to be here. So we are going to talk about local knowledge and you know, a first question that I have is, so you're an anthropologist. I don't know that much about what anthropologists do, but one thing that I think maybe a lot of people assume is that anthropologists go out into the world and try and like gather local knowledge from places. Um, is that right? Is that sort of partly right? Um, how does local knowledge fit into what you do? Like a lot of academic disciplines, anthropology has a fascinating and troubling history. And so one of the historical parts of anthropology was that anthropologists who were mostly white and mostly from Europe and the United States went out into indigenous communities and collected knowledge. That's an interesting way to put it. That's an older kind of anthropology and contemporary anthropologists while we're interested in the things people know, we don't really do that kind of collecting of knowledge anymore in the same way that our historical ancestors did within the discipline. Because mm. kind of the idea of local, to me, it implies something quite small and self-contained, which you could collect, right? Like it's almost like you could put it in a little box and take it away with you. Um, is that part, like, is that maybe a bit patronizing and that's why you don't view yourself as doing that anymore? Well, there's an assumption with the very idea of local knowledge. There's an assumption of a particular versus a universal. So when you think about a universal, you think about science, right? Scientific knowledge is true knowledge. It's the scientific- It's true everywhere in the world, like the laws of gravity or something, like it applies everywhere in the same way. It's true yeah. everywhere in the world. And that assumes that scientific knowledge is a universal. And the idea of local knowledge assumes that non-Western knowledge, non-scientific knowledge is somehow a particular, that it applies only to a certain group or a certain place. And it creates a dichotomy between knowledge that is seen as true knowledge and knowledge that is seen as less valuable knowledge and not knowledge that is translatable across multiple sites are knowledge that is even true. Mm. So that would be kind of, yeah, this idea of like certain people over there, right? Like from a kind of Western perspective, people elsewhere that sort of 
oh, it's nice that you understand your world this way, but actually, like, we have the real answers about, like, how the world works. Right. It's an assumption that propositions about what's true and real in the world on the part of people living in seemingly out-of-the-way places are not truth, that they're not real, that they're not reflections of the way that the world is and the way that the world works. And that's, you know, when we think about that sort of history of anthropology that brought about this kind of dichotomy between knowledge over there and knowledge over here, it's incredibly problematic. Yeah. I mean, can you, can you give me an example, maybe from your own research, where you've encountered this kind of knowledge that seems to go against how Westerners understand the world? And yeah, maybe like why, why it is not simply wrong, but actually like has a value in its own right. So think for a little bit about the kinds of environmental knowledge that people might have if they've been living somewhere for hundreds or even thousands of years. Think about, for example, if you lived in the highlands of Papua New Guinea. Which is a country you've studied a lot, right? It's a country that I've worked in quite a bit, yes. I mean, this is going to reveal the limits of my knowledge, but I'm pretty hazy on where Papua New Guinea is. So would you mind just giving a very brief overview of, you know, yeah, where it is and what's, what's important to know about that country? The island of New Guinea is the second largest island in the world. It sits directly above Australia, right below the equator. The eastern half of the island is Papua New Guinea, which is an independent state. The western half of the island is West Papua, which is a settler colony of Indonesia. Okay, good to know. So we're talking about um, the east side of this, this massive, massive island. And one of the things about the island of New Guinea that's spectacular is that it's the most biologically diverse place on our planet. It's also the most linguistically diverse place on our planet. So say that you're, let's, let's think about two different kinds of people in the highlands of New Guinea. Say that you're a scientist and you've come to New Guinea for the first time and you're very interested in birds. And you notice that when you touch this one bird that you collect called a petahui bird, that your fingers start to tingle and that they feel a little bit dead on the ends. And you start to think about, well, what, what is that? Why in the world is that happening? And you discover that there's actually a neurotoxin in the bird's feather. And so you discover, and I'm using quotation marks, which you can't yeah. because we're on the radio, <laughs> you discover that this bird is a poisonous bird. It's a big deal because it's the only poisonous bird in the world. And you start to think, well, how in the world did this bird become poisonous? How did that happen? And then you think, well, gosh, there are people who have lived in the highlands of New Guinea for thousands of years. Why don't I hang out with them and talk to them a little bit? And so you go and talk to the indigenous people in New Guinea. And what you find out from them is that they actually knew about that bird. So you didn't discover it. They mm. know how, in fact, that bird becomes poisonous because the Pitahui bird eats a particular kind of beetle that has that same neurotoxin in its skin. And so really the indigenous people have this knowledge about the biophysical properties of the world around them that is incredibly complex and that often is more sophisticated than the emergent scientific knowledge. Mm. 
And I mean, is this something sounded like you were maybe implying in that sense of like, well, who claims credit for discovering things, quote unquote, discovering things? Like, is there a tendency for the sort of like scientists or like, you know, Westerners coming to, um, to a country to sort of take credit for things that actually is knowledge that the people there already had? There's a long history of scientific exploration in places like Papua New Guinea, where Westerners have gone in and they've found things that are new to them, and they use a narrative of discovery. There's a wonderful scholar who was actually from Papua New Guinea, who is sadly no longer with us, who wrote a book about the colonial history of the country. And in that book, his name is Stella, Registove Stella. And in Stella's book, he talks about the colonial history of the idea of discovery. And one of the things I learned from reading him is that this impulse to claim and discover is a very old impulse when it comes to most of the colonial relationships in the world, but particularly with regard to Papua New Guinea. Yeah. So, I mean, is, is one of the things that we might say about kind of local knowledge quote unquote local knowledge. I still feel like I have to put air quotes around all these words, like um, that it isn't about novelty. It's about it's about kind of existing knowledge that, you know, sometimes is built up over like hundreds or thousands of years, that it isn't one of the reasons maybe people don't value it is because it doesn't seem new, it doesn't seem exciting, it doesn't seem like a discovery. I think it's complicated. I think that one of the reasons that people don't pay as much attention to local knowledge is because there's an idea that that knowledge is somehow calcified, that you have, say, an indigenous group or a group of people that are not indigenous who have been living in a place for a very long time, and that because they're emplaced, they're almost incarcerated in that place, and, and people don't understand that they're producing new knowledge all the time. And I have an example of this, a concrete example. So for the past 12 years, I've worked in partnership with John Eine, and John is the founder and director of Islands Awareness, a small marine conservation-focused NGO in Papua New Guinea in a place called New Ireland. Um, John is from New Ireland. He grew up there. And we work with this incredible man named Cornelius. Cornelius is a Mai which means that he is an initiated cultural leader and Cornelius knows more about the world than, than you or I can ever begin to imagine knowing. So Cornelius knows more about the ocean around him. He lives on the coast. He's a fisherman. He knows more about deep water fish than any scientist or any commercial fisherman. And he also knows more about coral reef systems than any coral reef ecologist. All of that is what people might think of as indigenous knowledge. But you know what else he knows? He knows the price for any kind of fish on both the local and the national market at any given time. He also knows the price of every fish internationally. He knows all about what's happening in the American political election season right now. I just spoke with him and he's very interested in watching our election. He knows a ton about national politics in his own country. So he holds in his kind of base of knowledge, this very, very old knowledge 
that has been passed down for generations. And then he also produces new knowledge about the world all the time. One of the projects that John and I work on with Cornelius and some of the other local leaders, some of the lo local elders, is a project looking at how they're producing knowledge about climate change right now. There are things happening now because of climate change that people have never seen before. And one of the things that we're focusing on- People in Papua New Guinea people have in, never seen before. Have never seen before. People that have lived in communities on the coast. Again, people have lived there for a very long time, but there are things happening now that are new. How do people make knowledge about that? How do they incorporate the scientific knowledge that they have because they've been to school, because they've learned the scientific method and the indigenous knowledge that's been passed down through their ancestors. Hmm. So, I mean, they're observing some of these kind of consequences of, of climate change, right? Like, is it that the sea level is rising in these communities that are right by the sea? Um, how are they producing knowledge about that that is different from knowledge produced elsewhere? So there are a range of things that are happening with climate change. One of them is sea level rise. Another one is declining fish stocks. There's the bleaching of coral reefs. There's an increase in invasive species that are coming up as water gets warmer and warmer. And so there are a whole range of things that are happening. So there's a lot of focus in this part of the world on increasing mangrove groves. So mangroves are these incredible trees that grow in lots and lots of coastal areas. New Guinea has more species than any other place in the world. And there's a focus on mangroves because mangroves do a really good job of shoring up the sea line. And they, they shore up the sea line and make it so coastal, coastal erosion happens at a slower rate. I think I've seen pictures of these. They have sort of roots that go down into the water, right? So they sort of grow out to the water and I guess like block the sea from coming further in. Yep. Um, so mangrove revitalization worked all over the world for coastal communities to combat climate change, to mitigate the effects of climate change. So one of the things that people in coastal New Guinea do is think about whether those externally generated models for combating climate change actually work given what they know about their coast. And so, for example, in a place called Cassilock, which is in New Ireland province in Papua New Guinea, there's a big project that came in that wanted to plant mangroves. Mangroves have worked in many, many other places globally. Local people there could say, well, you know what? Mangroves are not going to work here and they're not going to work because. And then they gave an explanation that was about scientific knowledge because they know about mangroves and how they grow but also historical knowledge because they know that even though they have a system that looks like a mangroves friendly system, it's not that there have never been mangroves there. It's not that anybody ever cut the mangroves down. It's not that there was deforestation. It's not that there was mm -hmm. erosion. They know that for thousands of years, there were never mangroves there to begin with. I see. Yeah. So they, they can kind of, bring their specific knowledge that maybe like goes back a very long way to actually, you know, challenge or even before it's put in place to say, okay, this approach won't work here. And so if they have this specialist knowledge, then, then like they should be listened to, right? Like, 
I think that's right. And I think you use the key word there and a word that I'd like to see us maybe move towards instead of thinking about local knowledge or indigenous knowledge, specialist knowledge, right? Oh, indigenous yeah, right. knowledge, I think, is something that is incredibly important. And I think expanding that definition to include the notion that this is not simply because people have lived in a place for a long time or their ancestors live in a place for a long time. It is because they are specialists. They are specialists on that place. And those specializations are often tied to history and memory and relatedness, but they're often based on a bringing together of different kinds of knowledge-making practices. Yeah. Well, Paige West, thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much. This has been a really fun conversation. That's it for this episode. For links to books mentioned in our discussion, plus further reading, visit our website, howtoreadpodcast.com. You can also listen to two bonus clips, one in which Paige discusses the value of collaboration in her career, and another in which she explains the local knowledge she's gained from living in a city. To hear about our latest episodes and news, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at HowToReadNow. This episode was produced by me, Milan Talunen, and by me, Olivia Branscombe, with editorial assistance from me, Colby King, and from me, Eleanor Roth-Hessen. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Special thanks to Columbia University for its support, and thank you for listening. 